Well, um, it all goes back to what's the story you want to tell. Oh yeah. Right? Okay. Right. I mean, at some point I'm going to, I don't care about this one transaction at some point. I'm going to want to know what happened, right? At the end of the year, what did my, what happened with my company? Where did all my money go? Where did all my income come from? What happened? And that's, that's the reporting piece. And that's what the accounts are set up for. They're there to answer those questions. So either you're answering a question that you care about, or you're answering a question that you don't care about. And those accounts can change, right? At some point I decided, you know, I don't need to see in a report how much I spend on water and how much I spend on electricity. Let me just dump those into utilities. Right? It doesn't matter. That's, mm-hmm. that's good enough. Um, and that's just a choice. So, so yeah, don't get, don't get hung up too much on, on, well, this is what the treasury statement says. Well, that's because somebody decided to do it that way. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with seventh-year MMT activist Bill Peoples. Bill and I continue talking about various subjects such as accounting, China, the life cycle of a government's money, and how human decisions are never natural or scientific. A full introduction can be found before part one, but for now, let's get right back to our conversation. different discussion yeah no Um, no it's just i was surprised to hear you say credit union when uh, almost 100 percent of the time in mmt discussions you hear banks yeah just Um, it's it's another word for bank just (laughs) just treat it as a bank yeah fair enough um you said something uh i'm just going to ask uh something specific that i saw you mention recently and i thought it was insightful and i'm sure you'll remember me you know acknowledging this on facebook someone was asking I think it was something like, you know, what if China dumps our debt? And you, I don't remember the exact context, but the way that you answered was government creates money, government destroys that same money. Whatever happens between those two points, all that we're talking about is changing of ownership of that same money. Right, right. That's, that's, it's a very concise way of, of saying it. That covers a lot of topics that covers China, that covers 
in particular, like, you know, China, China dumps its debt. Well, what are they going to do? They're, they'll change ownership or they'll purchase stuff or, you know, there's, there's only so many things that they can do, but right. nothing can destroy that money except for the creator of that money. So can you, I don't know if you can elaborate on, on that concept. Um, well, I mean, I, I think you pretty much said it, right? So, um, you know, the issuer of any instrument, so whether it be, uh, again, the, the U.S. dollar um, or it be a, a movie ticket or an arcade token or, or whatever it is, once, once that thing is issued, the issuer holds the liability and whoever gets that instrument holds the asset. And once, you know, until that asset is rejoined with its issuer, both of those things continue to exist. And, and once, once the assets back in the hand of the issuer, it, it ceases to exist, right? Because the, the asset and the liability offset each other. And, and so they don't, they no longer exist. So in between there, yeah, any, um, any of us can, can pass those things around, right? So I can theoretically go buy a, a movie ticket and say, hey, Jeff, I, you know, I bought this ticket. I can't go. Uh, it's sold out. Do you have an inter- interest in going? And, and I can elect to trade that to you for for whatever we decide the, it, the value is, whether it be a, a beer or some amount of dollars or um, just maybe a favor at some point in the future, whatever the case is, right? So... So that instrument can can change hands. Um, you can call it barter if you want. You can call it spending if you want. But it, you know, it can change hands any number of times. And somebody's assets go up, and somebody's assets go down when that happens, and at least in nominal terms. And and that continues to, you know, dollars out in the wild continue to change hands until they, until they go back to uh, to the creator, right? Mm-hmm. And and why don't you why don't you uh, could you hook that into like China for instance the the common China you know dumping their debt or whatever it is yeah the, and this is a common I guess I don't know if it's a fear thing just a, or just a misunderstanding of well China has all this leverage right well so what is it that China has so and and how did they get it so so at some point China said. Hey, why don't we give you our productive output? And this is something that Warren talks about in, in the Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds, is they're giving us real stuff, right? So whatever their output is from their real resources, their labor, their factories, and all that, they're giving us real stuff, which increases our net worth in, in real terms, aside from the nominal pieces. But if I have some amount of stuff and somebody gives me more stuff, I now have more stuff. It's pretty pretty straightforward. So, um, so they give us their productive output that increases our wealth in real terms, at least temporarily. Some of it's disposable, but whatever the case may be, it's something it's something that we decided was valuable that we didn't have to create using our resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and in exchange, they get you know, whatever we agreed the price was. So people talk about, you know, well, we got this trade imbalance. Well, that's perfectly balanced. We said, yeah, we want that. We're willing to pay. They said, well, we'll give it to you and we're willing to take this much. And that's balanced, right? We come to a decision of what the right price is. Um, So they get dollars, we get stuff. Both sides are happy. 
um, now that they have dollars, they can just like any other currency user, they can use them, they can spend them, they can trade them to somebody else for something else, or they can just hang on to them. And they, they like to hang on to at least a good number of them because we let them buy treasury securities that, that pay some interest. That's how they elect to hang on to them. And that's the debt, right? The debt to China is however many treasury securities that they own. So they take the dollars out of their checking account. They put it into their, their treasury securities account. And now instead of holding dollars, they're holding bonds. Okay. Well, what happens if they cash them in, right? Well, they take their dollars out of their treasury securities account and they put it into their checking account and now they're holding dollars. Okay. They cashed them in. So what? So it's the opposite of the transaction they did the first time. Hmm. And if they want to, they decide they don't want to hold dollars. They can, they can go sell them on the, the foreign exchange market or they can buy stuff with them, but they got to have, have somebody else on the opposite end that's, that wants to take that trade at whatever, whatever that price is. Yeah, the, word, the the phrase "dumping your debt" is it's just a scaremongering phrase. People just assume that it's bad without thinking what it actually means. Well, they, yeah, because they think that. Like, what are they going to do? Light the dollars on fire? Yeah, I mean, are they? Well, you know, the, I think the thought is, well, if they sell all their bonds at one time, the value of the dollar goes down. Well, one, they can't sell them all at one time. Well, maybe they can. It's probably not very likely. And it's um, certainly within our power to, or the government's power to delay them or, or. Well, I mean, if it's a, you know, or, if there's, if they're reselling a bond on the, on the retail market, some, they've got to have somebody else that wants to buy it. Right. So the, the number of bonds being offered and demanded are, are still equal. Somebody, they can't just dump it out there. <laughs> they can't create or destroy bonds either. Yeah. So bonds are money. Yeah, I mean, like you said, they could you know they could take dollar bills and set them on fire, but that doesn't hurt us. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I mean, it's a only the issuer can redeem that instrument, right? So you know, and anything that happens in between those two endpoints, like we said, is just a change of ownership. So they they have to have a willing trade partner on the other side that says. Oh, you don't want to hold those bonds? Well, I'll take them. Here's the price. Right. Yeah, it's money that makes money. I'll show and if up. all of a sudden there's a lot more for sale than what people want, that price goes down, which means China's net worth in terms of dollars also goes down. Right. So it's not necessarily a good position for them either um, to to dump them to try to sell them all. Right. Uh, so so yeah, it's just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. It doesn't. It it's not. A legitimate argument. Do you happen to be familiar at all with the Chinese economy as far as uh, their currency is connected to the dollar, but they have so much reserves in, in bonds or whatever it is in order to manage their economy? Yeah, um, just a little bit. I, I don't I don't know a lot about the Chinese economy. Um, I know that they do operate sort of on a fixed exchange rate uh, regime, but that that they certainly have some tools available to manage that to an extent. So, but beyond that, I'm, I'm not really the, the expert on, on that piece. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I that is something that I want to understand better as well. Um, but I, I do just just to the the basic point that they are. I don't believe it's a rigid uh, exchange rate. I believe there's some flexibility with. I mean, it's it. rigid when they want it to be. <laughs> you know, um, right, right. Yeah, but that's you know, there's uh, that's how fixed exchange work is it's we've we're going to fix the rate at this until we don't want it to be that and that's what it's kind of what happened with Bretton Woods right and uh, we decided you know we don't want to exchange the dollar for gold internationally at that price so we're just going to not do it anymore right there's there was a, a really good a really good quote on uh, superstructure uh, Will Beeman I believe in one of the earlier episodes said uh, on in fact I'll say the episode which was the virus is the virus. He said, August 1971 is not when money changed from being a commodity to fiat. It's just when our ideology stopped pretending it was ever a commodity to begin with. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's a good way to put it. it and what he's, what he's saying, how I understand it, is that, you know, so people say, well, we used to be connected to gold and, you know, gold is out of people's hands. It's out of human control. Yeah, that's right. But our choice to hook our money to it is not out of human control. Right. The gold standard is not out of human control. And it's that's evidenced by the fact that we went off of it in both World Wars and in 1971. Right. Yeah. So, and, so. And domestically back in what, 1933, I guess we stopped exchanging? We, in turn, I believe internally. Yeah. As I understand yeah, it. Just domestically. Right. So we kept the international arrangement as long as it was beneficial and didn't really affect us. Um, and then once we decided that maybe it's not convenient, then, you know, we abandoned it. Right. So, so it was, you know, it's, it was a fixed thing, but kind of right. You know, we, we had the option as a policy choice to, to change it. Um, so China has decided to somehow be hooked their currency to hook to our currency fixed to our currency to some extent. And they choose to compensate for that by having tons of US treasuries, bonds. Yeah, they reserve. can protect that rate if if they have enough foreign reserves, right? So, um, so it doesn't affect their fiscal space as much as it might affect somebody that doesn't have a lot of foreign reserves on hand. They have a lot of stuff to export. So actually, you know what? This is interesting because I, I'm starting to get more into, I'm not starting to get, I'm really aggressively trying to, you know, I, I spent my first two and a half years, I, February 2018 is when I discovered it, I discovered MMT. And, you know, you go through however long, like it's, the first thing is like, you know, logic. It's just very logical. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's just very obvious, you know, and. and Almost too yeah. obvious, right? I mean. That's the problem I had with it, is it made too much sense. So how could it be right? Nothing and, is and, wrong. Wait, wait, nothing is wrong. So doesn't that mean that something is wrong? It's like, it, uh, yeah. uh, what well, to expect when you're expecting? If it, I mean, My favorite question from the book, what to expect when you're expecting that massive 5,000 page book <laughs> that I'm, you know, my favorite question in the entire book is nothing's wrong. Could something be wrong? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, because why do we not, if it's this easy, how come, no, how come we don't all know this? Mm -hmm. right? That was, that was my thought. If it was this easy, 
surely we would everybody would just know i mean how do how do we not know and that that's what baffled me so yeah so it took me a little while to get my head around that piece <laughs> this is not supposed to be understandable to average people this has to be more complicated than i can understand yeah exactly and, and, and also it is not possible for us to not be abused. It, we, you know, we have to be abused in some way. We have to suffer in some way. <laughs> That's what the economy is. Right. If I need something good, then I have to suffer for in order to get it. That's the whole taxpayer myth. Yeah. In order to get, in order to get healthcare, I have to be taxed so that I go bankrupt. You know, I mean, something like that. You know, basically, I have to punch myself in the face in order to get healthcare. <laughs> Yeah, well, me it, being not working as a healthcare, yeah, I, I definitely identify with that. <laughs> but, but, but it's like so, the economy or society or whatever is all about suffering, and so MMT introduces the fact, introduces the concept, the idea that it is possible to not suffer. Well, it is possible for society to not suffer, but even more than that. It is possible to actually be treated better than just not suffering. It's actually be possible to be treated well, and well, that's to just a, to an extent, right? So it all, you know, and it all goes back to our real resources, our real capabilities. So the question is, do we have the capability for the number of people we have and the resources and productive capacity that we have for everybody to have what they need? And I think the the answer is right now, and in, in, in our case, is obviously yes. Now, if we lived in the middle of a desert, that answer might change, MMT or not, right? So, so you do have to have the underlying resources. You do have to have the underlying abilities, the te the technology, the uh, the know how, right? So it's not just as simple as we can make the money. Well, yeah, but the money has to buy something, right? It's got to be. There's got to be the resources. So, you know, and I tell a lot of people, it's like, well, what, what does affordability mean, right? They, we can't afford Medicare for all. Okay, well, what does affordability mean? So if I ask you right now, so, you know, let's say the, the stores are closed, you're at home, you want to make a sandwich. How do you know if you can afford to make a sandwich? You walk in, if you got bread, you got some ham, you got some cheese, you can afford it. Right? It doesn't have anything to do with your bank account. Huh. You either have the stuff or you don't have the stuff. And your paying for it is deciding to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's just a choice, right? And But it's already been done. So today, if I want to make a sandwich right now, can I afford it? I don't know. I'd have to go look. But I think I can. <laughs> so it's whatever's in the fridge right now. <laughs> so it, being able to afford it is do I have the stuff in my fridge? Do I have bread and meat and whatever? Yeah, in real terms, right? And paying for it. Is, is deciding to walk to your kitchen and do it. Yeah. Actually, it's the decision to walk to your kitchen to do it. That's the paying for it, like the analogy that's, to pay That's the labor it. cost, right, for, for right now, right, assuming I already have the materials. And it's like once you start doing it, it's like that is the payment is already, the, the money has already made its way into the economy and now it's happening. Yeah. Boy, that, that is a stretch, but that works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's, it's, but it's easy to understand, right? I mean, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I have the stuff, I can do it, right? I mean, that's that's the bottom line. But what if you make too many decisions? Won't there be inflation? <laughs> yeah. Well, there might be, right? I don't know. <laughs> you have un you have the unlimited capacity to make decisions. That's, at some, but point, we only have so many things 
and time to do in the day. So much, only so much food in our fridge. We can only make so many decisions. So I'm pretty sure I can make one sandwich, but if like 20 people, 20 of my closest friends come by, I don't know if I can make 20 sandwiches or not. We, we may all get a fourth of a sandwich. I don't know. Right. And that is we distributing have- your, deciding to distribute your resources evenly. Yeah. Even if you have just, you know, uh, you know, one piece of bread and 20 people, you can divide that piece of bread into 20 pieces. You could. you could. And everyone will suffer. You know, everyone will not be too pleased, but that is the best you can do in that moment. Or I can or I can just keep it to myself, right? I mean that's... Or you can be inequal about it. <laughs> right. Or you can have inequality. But, but Absolutely. Those are, yeah, and those are all policy choices. So we you know, so a lot of people and I don't want to get too ethereal on this, too philosophical, but you're not too philosophical about deli meat. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, just just in general about about choices, right? So we have we have the way society works right now. We have the way our economy works right now. We have the way our tax system and our elections and right there, there's there's the way things are at this moment. You can look around, you you can see kind of how things are. Think how things are divided up, what what inequality looks like, how many people we have homeless on the streets. We can we can see that. That's how they are now. And and I think a lot of people start with the idea that, okay, well, this is the natural state. Right. And then anything else we do is somehow unnatural. So right. if we now redefine how we divide stuff up, well, that's going against the natural state. But this is not the natural state. This is a state that we chose at some point. We went down a path and we ended up here. It didn't, this, this is not natural. <laughs> None of those, this is natural. For those in power, they have a stability. And that is, not, not, you know, you might not call it natural. But we are currently, you know, you and I are not out sleeping out on the street or desperate for our next piece of bread. You know, so we have stability. So we have to, it is the fear of there's homeless people on the street, but if we do something for them, then I'm going to have less. And I'm already struggling, you know, in my head, I'm already struggling because right. I'm, I'm only a hundred thousand air. I don't have a mill, I'm not a millionaire. So I, I'm struggling. Right. So if, exactly. if I have to. Everybody's struggling, I, right? Right. And millionaires are struggling because they're not, they're not hundred millionaires, you know? So if I help, the, the, you know, and the homeless people on the street, there's thousands of them, tens of thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them. poverty, you know, how many kids are in poverty? So it's like, it is the feeling of, it is the feeling for a privileged person to look at like homeless people or to look at disadvantaged people and that if they help them, they're going to be attacked by, you know, lower species people basically that that in order to help them they have to be you, you, even if they're a millionaire they can't help the huge population of those who are are suffering out there and the only one that can do that without having to chop itself into pieces is the issuer of the currency i mean bezos could do a lot right but we shouldn't give him that much power or that much credit Right. There's yeah. there's no reason, um, like like Stephanie says, money doesn't grow on rich people. There's there's no reason that whether we help this person or not is dependent on on how much we can extract from the rich guys. Right. It's just crazy. But that's that's what we're doing. 
Right. So we think there's a fixed pie. And if one guy's got too much pie, we have to take theirs to get it to somebody else. But let's just make another pie. <laughs> you know what yeah. I'm saying? We've got the stuff. Let's make another pie. Then if we want to worry about whether he's got too much, we, we'll handle that separately. That's a different right. issue. Um, right. But. Uh, okay. So, so what I was saying before, when you start off with MMT and at first it's just very logical, it just makes sense. You know, and, and, you know, you struggle with, well, why does this make sense? I, I'm too average for something to make sense. It's only for, you know, only economics is for important people. So clearly if I understand it, it has to be wrong. But so at first it's just, you know, logical. And, you know, so you want to, like I said before, like you, you learn piano for two weeks and then you turn around and you want to teach a second grader piano and you're a genius to them. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you could be a, you know, quote unquote teacher to, a second grader for at least a little while within that respect with like piano. But, you know, with, with, uh, you get excited about the logic stuff, you know, that, that I learned five minutes and I wanted to turn around and share it with someone that only knew two minutes, but then they hit you with stuff that you are absolutely not prepared to handle. And then, you know, six months into my journey, I, f I finally read, I'm, I'm just guessing, that's sort of just a feeling. I finally read Stephanie Kelton's 1998 paper, you know, can taxes and bonds finance government spending? Mm -hmm. And that's where I got introduced to accounting as well. And I was at first, I was extremely intimidated, you know, so then there's, there's a depth that you, that you suddenly realize that this, this is the tip of an iceberg. But then you get sort of a, a domestic sort of understanding of MMT. I think like after a year or a year and a half or whatever, like I think you you get a general domestic economy understanding of MMT. And now I'm at the stage where I s pretty much understand the basics of of developing nations and you know Fidel's work, just generally speaking. I can I can kind of say it in a basic way, but then. It's, I'm at the stage now where I'm trying to hook those two things together. And I think John Harvey's work is a significant amount of that. Oh, yeah. We're exchange rates. And I, I don't know, you know, I'll, I'll pretend you don't know and you'll tell me that whatever. But, you know, trading of goods is only a very small part of that. I mean, very. That's like 1% to 8% of what foreign exchange is. And so to an extent, exchanging of goods is very important because obviously governments have to provision themselves with real stuff. Right. But that's only a very small part of the puzzle because a trading of money is 90 to 98.5 of what actually happens between countries. And so that can swamp the effects of the trading of goods because, you know, Fidel says, you know, that developing countries have to gain control of their own currency and they have to be able to do full employment so that they can develop as much as possible to work towards not having to depend on other countries, import stuff, food, oil, you know, because then that other country can use it as a weapon right. very easily. But there's an additional part, which is you have to protect yourself from foreign interference in your currency. Because if they get a if they get a stranglehold on like an industry, or if you or if they trick you into s selling your water plant, whatever you call it, water industry, then they have control 
over you, regardless of your provisioning. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, but, but but that's where I am right now is is taking my domestic understanding and then taking Fidel's and then trying to trying to hook these two together. And I and I think that this is where John Harvey's work is going to come in. But I'm struggling to to complete that picture. It's it's pretty complicated. Yeah, I've got I've got John's book on my list. I, I haven't uh, I haven't gotten to it yet. So the the whole foreign exchange market is um, not something that I spent a lot of time with um, to this point. I will tell you the open, the inside cover. I could do an entire like <laughs> six hour interview with John just on the inside cover of his book. So I, you know, so the inside cover, it's basically trading of goods is not what matters. What matters is trading of currency, trading of money. Well, and in, then, in some respects, right? So, I mean, the, the goods matter to real consumption and, and what you need as a country to, to provision your yes. population, right? So that, so that, that is technically the important part from a survivability standpoint. Yes. But, it, and in a context that Fidel discusses, and I, and I'm, I'm struggling to distinguish between these two, but yes, of course it all boils down to real stuff and provisioning your government and people in real terms. But setting that aside for a moment, 90% of what 98% of what happens between two different countries is trading of money. So I, re- I highly recommend the book. Um, chapter one, just the introduction, I probably spent a month and a half on. Just a five page section, I actually was like, I'm, it's nowhere near done. It's a, an introduction of post Keynesian, which is really an introduction of mainstream versus post Keynesian. And I spent like, I just read that thing probably 15 times and just started writing. And uh, um, the, the chapter the chapter two, which is on the mainstream view, was such a chore, such, so very <laughs> difficult. Really, really was hard. Well, I think I saw some postings that you did on that. Um, it looked like it was pretty well covered, so I didn't, I didn't chime in, but. Uh, okay. But. Uh, um, so uh, yeah, obviously I, I'm I'm all over the place and uh, struggling to get get my head around it, but I know that that's kind of the direction where I need to go now. So anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no problem. There's a lot, certainly lots of areas that that uh, I'm deficient in as well, and could could uh, continue to to seek education on. So, uh, but yeah, John John's a great guy. Um, lot, lots of good information. Uh, of course, I love his. Uh, his cowboy alter ego. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that one, that one's on my list. I uh, just haven't gotten there yet. Right now I'm reading, uh, let's give a shout out to Stephen Hale economics for sustainable prosperity is, uh, mm. is what's currently sitting next to me. Cool. Where, where are you in the book? Uh, I am just at the beginning, so I haven't made it very far. Um, but so far so good. I'm on chapter two. Ah, and that's the mainstream chapter. That's, that's where I, I'm, I've, I've read chapters one and two. So yeah, looking forward to finishing that one. And I'm kind of in the middle of uh, Galbraith's uh, Predator State um, book, which hmm. is interesting, but it's a, it's a little, little harder read. So I, I kind of go back to that one every now and then and, and read another chapter and then move away from it for a while. Hard for a particular uh, reason? That's um, no, just the, it's, it's a little... It's a little drier, a little more philosophical. Um, it's a good book. Don't get me wrong. Um, uh, I, I would still recommend taking a look at it. 
it's just a little bit different than some of the other, I guess, some of the other things that I'm looking at. So, okay. Okay. Uh, so where else are you, uh, uh, or, or what other books or whatever has, has impacted you? Um, I mean, so most of it has been more papers and lectures and blogs and, uh, of course, Bill Mitchell's blog, um, the New Economic Perspectives blog I've mentioned before and, and any number of papers by uh, Rowan Gray and Nathan Tankus and Stephanie, of course, and Randy, and you know the the whole gang. You know, I I, I consume pretty much anything I can get my hands on. Uh, Are there any particular recommendations you would have for maybe people at the beginning? Uh, really, I mean, just going through the, uh, I think the money and banking series on on NEP is is very important to understand. Um, is that so, is that a, a draft of Time Wines textbook? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's basically his textbooks, which he may, if you contact him, he may uh, send you a PDF copy of, um, if you'd rather have the textbook version. Uh, I'm not making any commitments on his behalf. He may not, (laughs) but but, uh, something to to consider. Um, uh, The Godly Lavoie book was was fantastic, Uh, just kind of understanding the stock flow consistent modeling and and how those matrices are set up say the um, name of the that one again godly and what's the name of that god uh wayne godly and mark lavoie i think it's called macroeconomics uh let me see if i can find it for you real quick monetary economics an integrated approach to credit money income production and wealth and uh, as a programmer, you might be interested. There are some models already set up out there that you can run to reproduce the the graphs in the book, and you can play with some of the variables and you know see what kind of different results you get and stuff. So that that's kind of mm-hmm. fun. And that's a textbook, right? It is. Okay, you're, you're reminding me of just the the models that you can play with. Uh, Steve Keen, I know that he's uh, that his models, his programming models it has convinced him of some major part of MMT recently. Okay. Yeah. I haven't looked at his modeling stuff and, and I haven't read much of, of Keen's work. I've read, um, you know, uh, some tweets, some posts, and some interviews, uh, maybe a paper or two, but, but not, not a whole lot of his stuff. I do like uh, Steve, although I've got minor, I think we've, MMT has some minor disagreements with him on on certain things, but nothing nothing to get too excited about. Mm, related to uh, foreign exchange, as I understand it. Yeah, primarily. Yeah. Um, I don't think he's a fan of uh, Warren's uh, uh, suggestion that that uh, imports are a benefit, but <laughs> yeah. something related to that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, debunking economics. His book uh, is uh, is one of the next ones that I'm going to be reading. Steve Keynes. Yeah, there's no shortage, right? Um, there's plenty of materials out there. So okay. anybody that hasn't read it, that's listening, absolutely read the Deficit Myth, Stephanie Kelton, uh, Seven Deadly oh, yeah. Asset Frauds by Warren Mosler. I think those are, are are two excellent starting points for certainly for the novice and and even. For for those of you that have been, you know, around MMT for a while, if you haven't read those, highly recommended. 
Okay. Uh, well, one more topic, uh, if I may, and uh, that would be what is your familiarity or whatever, like main, uh, your understanding of mainstream. I am just starting to get into that, like to really understand what their assumptions and I, and John Harvey's actually been my gateway for that, a five page section in his introduction to his foreign exchange book. And then a, a chapter, uh, a 22 page chapter in his uh, contending perspectives book, which he did an interview on with uh, MMT podcast, which was great. Um, so I'm wondering of, of your understanding of mainstream in service of, you know, being a contrast to, you know, better understand what's wrong with it, basically why MMT is right. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't, really have a lot of background there. Um, again, my background is in engineering. Economics wasn't even required as part of that degree plan. Mm -hmm. So prior to, you know, getting involved here, my, I had a, an economics class in, in senior year of high school. Okay. Uh, that was pretty basic. And then, uh, you know, my view of mainstream was what the media says what the politicians say so that's i know that's uh different than what the academics say in a lot of cases but at the same time they haven't spent a lot of time correcting the media and the politicians so i i think to a certain extent they're they're culpable and and you know a lot of the mythology that's out there you know they like to say mmt doesn't bring anything new it's like well then why doesn't the population why don't they know this stuff, right? So um, if, if it's not anything new, you know. So my, you know, my experience with mainstream is just in, in limited conversations with, you know, exchanging ideas with people, but I haven't, I haven't spent a lot of time studying it. Um, I did hear John Harvey's recent, uh, he was on the MMT podcast, uh, Christian Riley uh, and Patri Patricia Pino talking about the contending perspectives. Yeah, it was um, a very good episode, especially. Um, haven't read the book yet. Um, also on my list, but mm -hmm. again, that that list is getting longer by the by the minute. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, so yeah, um, you know, I, I I see the the responses uh, to the criticisms and and those kinds of things. I, I see what the critics are writing, which, you know, in most cases are are straw man arguments uh, from from what I've seen over the past few years. So, mm -hmm. but that's about it. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, well, is, is there, you know, any closing thoughts or any recommendations or anything else that you wanted to say? Uh, nothing in particular. Um, although, you know, we talked about accounting a little bit. There was something that I had meant to say on the accounting front. Sure. Um, so once again, you know, I've, I've had some experience doing accounting uh, for my own businesses. At one point I had a couple of different stores, but they all rolled up under the same company. But I had a set of books for one store, I had a set of books for the other store. When I went to do my taxes, I combined those two to get overall numbers, right? My, my overall profit and loss. And I think a lot of people, you know, kind of like what we were talking about in terms of policy, just because of where we are, does it make this the natural state? That That's kind of true with the accounting pieces as well. Just because we 
have decided to separate the treasury and the central bank doesn't mean that that's how it necessarily has to be. Mm-hmm. And just like I can roll up two different stores into one company to get a set of combined numbers, you can you can do that with different parts of the government or you can break it out. I mean, within my own household, I could I can look at my household as a unit or I can break out each individual person and look at their income and their expenses independently. Um, I can even look at my left pocket and my right pocket independently if I choose to. And your wife is the treasury and you're the but, Fed. Yeah, but those are all choices, right? And and even when we name an account, that's a choice, right? So I, I'm the one that set up QuickBooks for my company. I could say that my water and electricity were water and electricity, or I could say that they were both utilities and put them in one account, right? Mm. That's just a choice. It mm. It's a choice based on... Later, when I want to retrieve information and I want to tell a story about what happened with those transactions, what is it that I'm interested in seeing? And that's how you choose what your accounts are. So a lot of people think of an account as like a piggy bank. You put stuff into it. You take stuff out of it. But really, an account is, you know, it's it's just a label. It's a descriptor, right? So when we look at the Treasury General Account, that's just a label that we've given and we've decided, you know what, we're going to have taxes go into that account. We're going to have spending come out of that account. That's just record keeping. But we could have a treasury tax account that just tracks tax flow. We could have a treasury spending account that just tracks expenditures. And those two don't need to be combined together. That's just a choice that somebody made because they wanted to, instead of doing the math to subtract one from other the other later, they wanted a running balance of what that difference was. But that's just a that's just a reporting choice, right? So a lot of people get tied up on, yeah, this is the way it is because this is what the accounting says. But those are that's not a natural state either. That's just some choices that somebody made. And we can keep those choices. We can make different choices. But understanding that they're just choices is kind of what gives us power to see through that, see through the fog, you know, kind of remove the veil and figure out exactly what's really happening. It's you, if you want to change it, you have to understand what it is first. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's what MMT does is breaks it down. And so you'll, they'll say, Oh, it's so complicated. It will, we're just reporting on what it is. You know, what it is is actually complicated because they choose for it to be complicated. They also choose, you know, they choose to name it that way. They choose to do these things now, because what you said, because what you said, you know, they're just choosing to, you know, that's just a choice that they made, but it's not just a choice of organization, meaning good faith. It's not just a totally good faith choice. It's also a little bit of a choice of we can use this to scare people, you know, with debt and deficit and so on. And I wonder how that analogy works its way down to your your personal example of, you know, your businesses and your QuickBooks and so on. Yeah. Well, Um, it all goes back to what's the story you want to tell. Oh yeah. Okay. Right. I mean, at some point I'm going to, I don't care about this one transaction at some point. I'm going to want to know what happened, right? At the end of the year, what did my, what happened with my company? Where did all my money go? Where did all my income come from? What happened? And that's, that's the reporting piece. And that's what the accounts are set up for. They're they're to answer those questions. 
So either you're answering a question that you care about or you're answering a question that you don't care about. And those accounts can change, right? At some point I decided, you know, I don't need to see in a report how much I spend on water and how much I spend on electricity. Let me just dump those into utilities. Right? It doesn't matter. That's, mm-hmm. that's good enough. Um, and that's just a choice. So, so yeah, don't get, don't get hung up too much on, on, well, this is what the treasury statement says. Well, that's because somebody decided to do it that way. Um, for nefarious reasons or not, uh, I, I tend to think not, but you know, and there are some standards for this stuff. It's not like it's all just made up. So the, there are some accounting standards for what you put where and how you classify certain things, but, but there's also a lot of discretion in that too. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for talking. We this, these, it's at the stages that we're at, I think, you know, especially we're starting to pierce the, you know, we're, we're going deeper now, you know, we're, we're, we're aggressively going deeper and, and it's, and it, and it does get complicated. Well, well, hopefully what I said was worthwhile and, and, and also correct. If somebody's got corrections, I'm not too proud to accept those. Please uh, send them to me and we can discuss, but, but I th- think I've got it for the most part. So. Well, it seemed, it seemed to make a lot of sense. And this is, this is specifically a conversation of two people learning together. We're not pretending to be experts, but clearly yes, we're, never, we're on the right. I never claimed to be the, the expert by any means. I just, I just yeah. have been doing it longer than, than some people. So, and we're, we're clearly on the right path. So, uh, Bill, thank you so much for talking. Thank you Absolutely. so much for, yeah. And doing what you're doing and, uh, you know, I, I actually, uh, a completely unrelated MMT, not related to MMT thing, um, on your wall that sort of twisted my brain was the, uh, where do the circles intersect post that you have, uh, from maybe a few weeks ago, or I, I don't know, maybe it was a while ago, but I, I went down your timeline and you have a post of where do the circles intersect? Oh, wow. There's no telling what's on my timeline. I don't delete okay. stuff. So there's maybe a bunch of wrong stuff too. If you go back uh, far enough. <laughs> well, anyway, there's there's a really cool a really cool um, uh, optical illusion where it looks like they it looks like it's all intersecting circles. But it's oh, actually... yeah, yeah, yeah. The oh, I love those things. Yeah, uh... yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was I spent I probably spent like a good half hour staring at the thing. I thought you were um, talking about a Venn diagram or something that I posted, but <laughs> no, 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 an optical illusion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, well, thank you for talking, and, and uh, I enjoy all your your you know seeing your your comments on Facebook and so on and Twitter. So, uh, I you know I have definitely learned some from you. So, awesome. yeah, reach out anytime, and uh, I'm glad we can get together. Yeah, and nice uh, nice finally to talk with you after all this time. Absolutely. Yeah. Goodbye, Jeff. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. All right. See ya. For this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster 
for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus, then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with seventh-year MMT activist Bill Peoples. Bill and I continue talking about various subjects such as accounting, China, the life cycle of a government's money, and how human decisions are never natural or scientific. A full introduction can be found before part one, but for now, let's get right back to our conversation. <laughs> 